Hey, Bernie, how you doing? I am doing great, Commoner. How about you? Really good. And I'm super excited for this conversation. What would you say is your niche? What do you often tweet about? It's a mix between God and religion, but a lot of it is culture and what that means in understanding human behavior. And it kind of ties into how other people think. How did you land on this culture niche? Because the religion part makes a lot of sense just if you're devout, obviously something you can discuss, but how did you land on the culture aspect too? So I started in culture back in college. I have a good friend and mentor even to this day who's worked under some big names in the cultural anthropology, sociology mm. space. So I took a class with him. I ended up hitting it off really well. Culture is your own behavioral and traditional bubble. I try to pop it a little bit. Yeah. Now you said that travel is not the only use case for it, but going to college was when I was really exposed to people different than me. And of all the things that I gained from college, I would say that exposure to different groups of people was the most valuable part. Agreed. And that's really a lot of people's first inundation with mm -hmm. being people outside of their bubble. I know it was for me. I was homeschooled. Hmm. Christian my whole life, grew up in a church. So I was homeschooled and that, you know, you kind of get isolated, even though I had classes I took with other people, it's not quite the same as a public or private school. So going to college, it was really my first cultural interactions outside of the microculture of like a homeschooled Christian. Oh, this is so interesting. So I've actually haven't spoken to someone on the podcast yet who was a homeschooled student, just people that want to homeschool their kids. So the main trope against homeschooling is the lack of socialization. Can you just explain what your experience was socializing with other kids if you were homeschooled? So I've done all forms. I've done from just at home to hybrid setup where it was a group. Uh, it's like a co-op where mm -hmm. a bunch of homeschoolers can come together and do classes. So usually they hire teachers or parents will teach. You know, if you have like an English teacher from college, you can teach a class for high schoolers, right? Depending on the state that you're in, some laws are really lax, some are not. I believe it's like New York, for example, is terrible when it comes to homeschooling. So it just depends on the laws. In terms of socialization, I was around our kids, all sorts of stuff through church. I was always the socially awkward kid, but I think that was just me. I don't think it was <laughs> lack of socialization, but I was at almost like a mini school in the sense of how many families there were and classes. And I got used to people just through trial and error. I remember a lot of it was through high school, middle school. I was playing catch up a little bit just because I was a turbo. High school, I worked my butt off on, I guess you'd call it social cues. So you can totally do homeschooling without worrying about socialization issues, whether that's joining sports, joining clubs. I did theater as a kid. That helped a lot. Homeschooling is great because you get to pick and choose your kid's education and you know them best. So you can give them the education you want. I think I had a, what, a 2000 word vocabulary by the time I was two years old. I, I was reading a ton of books when I was really young. So I got to get fed a lot of English and history and books like that. And my brother, who was a little more math oriented, got to do math. It's great because you get to pick and choose your kid's education. You just have to make sure you include the socialization through classes or recreational activities and actually getting them out there. Yeah. I've been talking to so many people about this and I was really in the private school camp because I totally understand not wanting to put your kid in public school. I'm a product of public schools, like they're not teaching them anything right now, especially after COVID. But the ability to tailor the education, not only to your kid's ability, but also what they're really interested in. So yes, every kid should learn the basics of grade level math, science, and reading. But if your kid is just obsessed with history, that's something they can pursue at home and they can't do that even at a really good private school. And childhood is the time to be as free as possible in your intellectual pursuits, I think. Absolutely. And I was blessed because I got to take classes where it was like you'd call like an honors program. Right. Uh, where we read probably 20 books a year of like philosophers you know my bookshelf is full of all these philosophers theologians history books and so we'd sit and talk about them and that's where I got a lot of my backgrounds in kind of understanding religion and religions around the world when you're writing four 10-page papers a quarter for six years you get used to being able to talk about topics and talk about them thoroughly I think that there's an attack on the university and liberal arts education entirely from the right 
in that who's going to go pay 300 grand to go get a liberal arts education, like engineering, math, science, med school, business. Those are the only things that provide value. I strongly disagree with that. There is a huge difference between reading Aristotle and Socrates and studying anti-racism from the 1990s. And so when you batch all of that together, you are missing out on the arc of human civilization and all of those ideas. So I, I totally agree. I think the most I have ever learned, like, yeah, you learn a lot of calculus in college, but the most I really pushed myself intellectually were in small group seminars, colloquiums, discussions, reading difficult material and debating it. Yeah, absolutely. It teaches you how to think. Mm -hmm. At the very least, you get to understand different worldviews, whether you agree. Like, does it necessarily help you make money? No. Does it help you be more well-rounded? Sure. Should you pay 60 grand a year for it? Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. There's There are better ways. I'm a big believer in the idea that you are the sum of your experiences. So college was great for me. I found mentors, friends, learned a lot because of college and decisions I made in college. But just if I were to recommend just college to somebody off the street, like if they came up, yes, no, the answer is no. I think I had a probably five or six classes, including those in my degree that were really useful. And a lot of things I learned on my own separately. I, I would agree with that assessment. It's not right for everybody, but I think having a mandatory curriculum of liberal arts, ancient philosophy, things everybody's got to learn. So you start from some common basis point. I do think that there is value in that. In, in a lot of these schools, so they're getting rid of the, the foundation, the general ed requirements, and you can design your own curriculum. So you could waste your four years taking some really stupid stuff if you don't have someone keeping your guardrails on. Yeah, that's true. It also depends on what you're trying to get out of college. Hey, I need just the minimum number of credits so I can cruise through. You're starting a Wi-Fi money business, right? Let's yep. say you're arbit arbitraging stuff out of your dorm from Bowtie Mahi. You don't, you want to save your time. There were classes that I took that were, I wanted to go with the easiest class or the easiest professor because I didn't need the class. I didn't want to take it. And if you're flexible enough, like I studied abroad in college and that mm -hmm. was a huge thing for me in terms of culture and actually being able to integrate, I was able to integrate fairly well to where I traveled. I traveled to a non-dominant English speaking country. They did still speak English because I wasn't perfectly fluent with the language. I had relationships and conversations there that I would not have had if I had, did not have go in prepped for cultural understanding. I went to one of the open air, like one of the open markets where the local shop and because I messed up the uh, I messed up the language, I got free stuff from the the owner of the like little sh uh, herbs market because I would go I would talk about America, and her husband would translate. And every time I talk about America or show photos of like places that I had been in the U.S., she would go and grab a little bag of spices and give it to me, and we would talk and engage back and forth. And I had friends who all they did was shop at the grocery store. They mm. never went anywhere. They didn't speak the language. They didn't try to do anything. They went to all the English speaking tour center, you know, tourist attractions and never got involved. I made friends there. Yeah. I learned how to cook some of the food because I bullied a chef into, uh, you know, a chef who was training, who would teach Americans into being friends. That is something I really wish I was able to do. But unfortunately, mine got canceled because of a certain sickness that was roaming around for a couple of years there. But I totally agree. I think there's a tendency to go to the most American, most prosperous cities to study abroad, like London, for instance, which you're not going to get anything really out of that other than a different bar scene. Exactly. Here's a question for you, though. Because you've traveled, you're aware of a lot of these cultures because you've read so much about them. What do you do in a situation where you're in a culture that has a practice or a tradition that you morally disagree with? This is a complicated question. I was actually looking over this beforehand because this is this is a tough one. It's kind of a trap question, but you didn't know it was a trap question. <laughs> I'm serious. I, I don't know. I wrote know. it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so... The assumption is going into a culture that you dis that uh, to kind of change it because the assumption is if you disagree with it, you must change it. What's the purpose behind going into the culture? 
if you are just trying to get visit and be a tourist and you don't agree with the practice, well, you can, you know, vote with your dollar or vote with your feet and not be there and engage. Hmm. But the assumption is that some cultures are better than others, which is not the case. Every culture has elements that are good uh, or that are creative that, and then some that are destructive, and, but most are neutral. Most elements of a culture are neutral. And if you go somewhere that you disagree with, what's the purpose? Did you just not know? Did you travel somewhere and not realize that this was a standard practice and you think it's wrong? Well, you aren't there long enough to actually make any changes. The general rule is if you're going to make a critique of a culture, you probably have to be there for at least three years fully immersed. And if you want to try and change the culture, it's a years and years long series of discussions with the locals themselves. And you probably have to have been there for about 15 years. It's a very slow process and it's done very poorly in terms of a lot of missionaries and especially in the past before this sort of stuff was discussed. If you're going into a culture where you disagree, what's the purpose that you're trying to be there for? What if you are trying to become more worldly and so you just pick a random place on the map? And you have money to spend, and so you go there. It's safe. And you see something happen that's morally you don't think is right. Do you have a duty to say something, or do you just keep your mouth shut? So you have to understand that you are walking into a different world. Just because something is different doesn't mean it's bad. For example, let's take something totally arbitrary and benign. You know, wearing your shoes in the house. Are you a shoes off, or was your family a shoes on or shoes off house? Shoes on. Dirty. Shoes on. So my family was a shoes off house. <laughs> Let's say you go somewhere like, uh, I, th- I believe it's what, Japan has slippers and they take their shoes off. Mm-hmm. If you were a shoes on and you thought, you know, could that be morally wrong to you to leave, take your shoes off or is it just weird? I would just do, I mean, I don't have a problem with taking my shoes off. But it's weird, right? It's a different behavior than you're used to. I don't think it's weird. I just think rich people do it because they have nicer houses. And my parents are like, eh, it doesn't matter. Like, <laughs> but, but still, it's a different practice and a different behavior. And sometimes there are things that go on and there's a purpose behind cultures that you just don't realize is there. I guess some of this comes from the American core values and American behaviors and traditions where we have a moral imperative to say something. We like, you must go in, you must do the right thing. You must do democracy. Well, you're walking into a tribal culture where they don't do democracy, where it's a small, you know, it's a small hierarchical, like, you know, patriarchal or matriarchal society. Democracy doesn't work there. Well, you must do democracy because it's the right thing to do, the voice of the people. No, it's a right thing to you and your culture, and you are imposing your will on another culture without understanding the background. The better way to approach changing a culture is critical contextualization, which means you are an expert in, in this case, let's say Christianity, because this would be, in this case, a new Christian church or whatever, who is navigating the balance of these old old cultural customs versus Christianity and integrating them. Uh, pastor would be there just to talk about the Bible, and then the locals would gather and write down everything that's associated with the different traditions the rituals, the chants, everything, and look at the meaning behind them. And when they'd come into a conflict with what they knew about scripture, they would work together to either create a new tradition or modify the tradition in a way that honored scripture. For example, there was a tribe, I believe it was in New Guinea, where the practice was, this might get you demonetized from YouTube. So (laughs) I will be very careful here. When kids turn 13, tribe would figure out who their spouse was going to be. So another 13-year-old kid, because that was the day that you were an adult, uh, the future father-in-law was supposed to teach the kid about what it meant to be a woman, except it would be, mm -hmm, except he would be embarrassed. So he would pass it off to his best friend. And that was his responsibility. And it was the reverse with the the young kid. And the future mother-in-law of the son would do the same thing. You, You and I both have the exact same reaction. And they would do this until the girl was pregnant. And because they are not likely to serve, kids are not likely to survive when their pregnancy is that young, that would happen. And if the kid survived, they would be called a goblin child. So they wouldn't be considered human until about a year old when they were likely to survive. And they would say the goblin had left. Now, missionaries came in. And obviously, you and I both are horrified at this. And so is, you know, so, so were they. 
And so after talking about the gospel with these guys and the, the tribe said, this doesn't line up with Jesus and what Jesus has for us. We need to work together to change the tradition. So they went back and they looked at all the reasons behind they did this. It was about new birth because you were becoming an adult. So they figured out something that was not what exactly I just described. And apparently there was a sociologist who went back 20 years later or, you know, years later. And some of the old guys were like, I miss the good old days, but eh. the tribe changed that tradition because they looked at it and said, Hey, this is wrong in context of Christianity. And it was without the missionaries imposing, you know, imposing their will and having a moral rejection from the outset and going in and critiquing right away. They came in with, to talk about Jesus and understand the culture and after trust and relationships had been established, they fixed everything. That is absolutely fascinating. My question would be, okay, like Ann Coulter will call other civilizations peasant cultures, and she argues that's why they all want to come to the United States. So she would argue that some cultures are inferior to others because some cultures adopt universal equality, democracy, liberation of women, that makes them superior to others. And that's why people come here. Would you say that that's factually inaccurate, that Western civilization is not superior to others, such as the tribe you just described? Cultures are just different in the sense of yeah, there's good, sometimes there's bad, sometimes there's more bad than good, sometimes it's more good than bad, sometimes it's things are neutral. I mean, the US, do you think about it, we have a lot of things that are worth celebrating. We are the easiest place in the country, in the world to make money. We have a lot of upward mobility. We have a lot of our own faults. We view the world as if we have moral superiority. Let me back up and explain American core values because that'll give a little context to the end culture question. So American core values, we are what's called mechanistic. We are highly individualistic. Mm -hmm. We are rationalists and we are empiricists. So mechanist means we view things as systems, as if-then statements, as everything is a machine. If we pull the right levers and we do exactly this, we can end the war on drugs, end cancer, if we just pull these levers and we know which levers to push. The world tends to be a little bit more complicated than that. We like order. We like understanding how the world works. We like categorizing things. And then we are highly individualistic. We're the most individualistic nation because of our history and who came over here. If you think about it, who are the people who are most likely going to come from a place like Europe where you have established wealth, you have prestige, you have civilization. The people who are going to most likely come to the United States are the people who are highly individualistic, adventurous, risk takers, who want to start, start a new life for themselves, get a name. Those are the people who came to the U.S. and who still, you know, who still do come to the U.S. even to this day. And they are people who want to bet on themselves. And that, that philosophy carries itself down into our culture. And then we're also empiricists. We are if we can't see it, if I can't smell it, taste it, touch it, or hear it, it doesn't exist. So of course, we're going to think we're the best in culture. Of course, you know, she's going to think that because that that is how we think. We think we are the best. Other people think differently. And some of that comes and some of the benefit from the U.S. comes from, yeah, we get, you know, high development index. And but at the same time, we miss out on strong familial ties. Are some things worse than others? It depends on the context and what's important to you. I think that we do some things exceptionally well in the United States. I wouldn't want to live anywhere else, but there are definitely things that we do not do so well. As you were saying, like the bonds of family, we don't have that as closely as other countries do. Like generations don't live in the same house. We have a super high divorce rate that affects children growing up. There's all these problems with Western women that you see on YouTube all day long. My question yeah, is- so that's so for instance, a lot of people come to the United States and they want to make changes. That is something that people who come in and they attack the United States when they come here, that's where I really have an issue with it. And this gets back to the internal turmoil that I'm currently having from a former libertarian becoming a social conservative. Are some cultures better than others? The is America is, better uh, than others? And the answer is it depends. It, I think the answer is... In some ways, yes. In some ways, no. Like, no culture is absolutely perfect than every other one. But of the options Correct. that I have, the United States has the best one. And this is where you have to separate out culture from, you know, development index. If you were to take the U.S. culture and put it in, you know, Nigeria 
and you were to put Nigerian culture and put it in the U.S., change nothing, you know, change nothing else, keep the development index, keep, you know, the amount of money made, is the U.S. culture superior, not the place and not the living standards, but is but, the United States culture better? But isn't the culture responsible to an extent for the higher living standards? You can separate them out a little bit because you look at China, right? So mm -hmm. look at China and look at, you know, they have a objectively okay standard of living. They are not the same as American culture, but, you know, or, you know, I don't know what the second, you know, the second standard of living culture is, right? Mm -hmm. Let's say for, so for example, it's China or so is, is the, is the American and Chinese cultures similar? No, they're actually very different. So a culture can tend to have a better wealth or whatever some of the you know some things in a culture can foster those developments so in some ways yeah the u.s culture is better and some places it's not it's the place that you can make the most money and it has the most money but is it the culture and the behavior of the americans themselves that drives people here or is it the money and the ability to make money just because there is an abundance of capital coming around and so there's a mix there's a misunderstanding of culture and what those actual behaviors are versus standard of living and money and businesses and regulation and laws that come about. I also think there's this part of it where, and I think you're getting at this, that there's more to life than just the cost of living or in just the quality of living rather, and what is accessible to you in terms of consumption and leisure. And I think you're getting at like, what does it mean to live well? Correct. Right. So you could go to Italy, right, or mm -hmm. France, where they have really good food and they have pretty OK. Well, Italy does not. But that's because Mediterranean culture. But, you know, France has a pretty decent standard of living, barring the energy crisis. But they have different values. They value relaxation at work and spending time with family and people. And so they have like, you know, you have wine at, in the afternoon at work and you have lots of holidays because they value that leisure time more. Mm -hmm. Is that better? It depends on who's asking. If for most Americans, they're going to say, absolutely freaking not. Um, uh, I want to be able to work and make money and grind, especially in the jungle. Mm -hmm. But to other people, they want to say, no, spending time with my family is important to me and being able to go travel and make memories is more important. Do some cultures lend themselves more? Yeah, absolutely. Religions do too. So you take a look at China where they had alchemy, but not chemistry. Mm -hmm. Islam, uh, you know, Islamic countries had the same thing. They had alchemy, but they did never had chemistry. And, but in, you know, Europe, they came up with chemistry because it comes to culture and religion in China. Sometimes there's some mysterious things. Some, some of the world is not meant to be understood in, you know, in the philosophy and the religion there. Some things are just divine and mysterious. So mm -hmm. we're not going to look at why, when you combine what's, uh, I'm not the chemistry chemistry nerd, uh, sulfur and the other items to create gunpowder. We just know when we combine them, it makes gunpowder. China mm -hmm. had gunpowder first, right? Mm -hmm. In Islam, um, Allah spun the world up kind of like a top. He's not very involved. It's uh, a more deist, it's very yeah. complicated religion, but he spun the world up like a top kind of. Well, okay, then we can't know and understand what's going on. We can kind of, we can kind of, but we don't understand, you know, why things are. Meanwhile, Christianity says there's a God who created me, who created the universe, who, who intimately crafted it and sculpted it and was the master artist behind everything. And he knows me as a human being. He knows me down to my core and my soul. I can understand the world because I was created by someone who is who understands me. And this is where you get probing down into you know the different molecules and how chemical bonds are formed. And this is where you get the empiricism. And so you get capitalism coming out of, I believe it was the Old Testament and property laws. Meanwhile, in China, if you had, this is a true story, there was iron mines and they were some of the best iron mines in the, in the, uh, in the world. And they were producing so much iron, but then you weren't, the, the owners of the iron mines were living in excess and you're not supposed to live in excess. There needs to be a balance. So the king came in and seized all the iron mines and basically shut them down. And that all came from their philosophy, religion, and culture. And so they are different. So different cultures foster different things. Capitalism won out because it was the most efficient market. I did a colloquium on capitalism and morality. And we had to read a bunch of stuff about, you know, is socialism a more moral system, whether or not it's more efficient? I would argue no. 
because I'm a diehard free market capitalist. God save my soul. <laughs> but it was super interesting. We had to read this article about a camping trip. And the camping trip was an allegory. And it was like, we're all on this camping trip together. And it's like, should someone be the person that always has to clean the camp of, you know, when you pee or you go number two? Should someone always be the the cook? Like, is that fair that we're always segregating these different activities? And I said in the middle, I was like, well, if you pay the person who cleans up the gross stuff more money, then they'll do it. <laughs> and that is fair. Yeah, no, I mean, it's true. If you want to get in, if you want to, if we want to switch over to religion, you could talk about how Christian churches had a early version of voluntary socialism, which is used a lot by reply guys, but they forget the voluntary part. Yeah. <laughs> in socialism, it really loses that voluntary part pretty quickly throughout history. That that goes out the door. I need, um, I need you to do me a favor, comrade, and face the wall. Yeah. <laughs> Can you voluntarily turn around, please? <laughs> and even though I'm taking a fairly neutral stance that comes from some of the, the culture stance, I mean, I am fairly opinionated when it comes to things. And sometimes I do think things are the best best way. But in the context of culture, I have to, this is where you get to kind of break people's brains a little bit by playing are you sure it's 100% the best? There is nowhere I'd rather live than the United States. There are things I value in other cultures. There is food I value. There is emphasis on family and relationships. But as I've said on Twitter a few times, if you culturally appropriate, you take the best of every culture. So you're pro-cultural appropriation. I'm Absolutely. I'm going to call the leftists on you immediately. Okay, that's fine. And then I'll ask them, you know, when's the last time they went to Taco Bell or uh, <laughs> Panda Express? <laughs> That's a really interesting way of putting it. By culturally appropriating, you're taking the best of every part of culture and you're making a super culture. Absolutely. It's a sign of respect. So there, is there a difference between me dressing up at, in a kimono on Halloween versus me putting a ton of effort and time into crafting the perfect egg roll and teriyaki sauce dish? So I'm not Japanese. If you couldn't tell, I don't know if you could, <laughs> but everyone I've talked to said, I mean, yeah, if you're doing it in a respectful way, what better way to honor, you know, you're, you're honoring our culture. You're taking the things that you, you, you are part of being what's, you are taking some of the best things and things that I like. Why would I not be okay with it? Everyone knows the weirdo who goes studying abroad and then won't shut up about, yes. you know, it's possible. so true. And those are the people you avoid because they have no EQ and culture is just like their newest, you know, newest exciting thing. I just find it funny that people take offense and typically the people who take offense are the whites. Yeah, I mean, exactly. <laughs> They're not the people that are actually, I've never seen no. one Chinese person angry at me because I took the time to learn how to make egg rolls, which are very, very difficult to make and very time consuming and they turn out deliciously, but like. I've never seen them angry that I try to do their food. They like it. <laughs> They're yeah. like, wow, that's why would awesome. you not? I mean, they, you know, people love love their you know food from their from where they grew up. That's in, that's important. That's why we have American food. American food that we think of like Italian American or Chinese American is because of people who came from you know the Sicilians who came from Italy to New York. They had to they had all these recipes that you would have in Europe and Italy that you couldn't get food in the U.S. You don't have the same type of fish. You don't have, you know, San Marzano tomatoes don't ship, you know, they couldn't ship those across, right? So all this stuff you make do. Uh, American food is just other cultures in the melting pot making do with ingredients that are found here that you can't find somewhere else. And then eventually they become their own fusion hybrid thing. People always make the point of saying this country was built on immigrants. It's a melting pot. That's what makes us great. I agree with that, that the mix of cultures is so fascinating and so unique compared to other places. But again, there was an underlying set of values that drew people here. And I don't think that should be dismissed or tossed out simply because it's old and it's not representative of the cultures of the people who are coming here. Culture is hard to change. You're going to be really hard pressed to change it outside. Uh, it's going to come from somewhere internal. One of the most common ways to change values is through crisis. We're seeing a little bit of it with post um, post lockdowns, mm -hmm. where people are caring a little less about their appearance. Usually, there's a significant number of pounds added. <laughs> so 
like the crisis, the, the crisis of the isolation of the lockdowns and the total behavior change we had for two years can change the culture. And it's a little too new, but it takes a crisis to change someone's core values. And other than that, it's usually slow and it's across multi-generations. Yeah, I think natural change would seem to be the best way of going about it. That's what George Washington advocated for. I'll have you know. George Washington was not a fan of slavery, but he prioritized the creation of the Union over the moral injustice. And he advocated for gradual, slow change by the rule of law because he thought that a violent overthrow or upheaval to get rid of slavery would be worse than the original sickness, which is not a popular thing to say in a soundbite. George Washington, pro-slavery. But it's true. It's really hard to change values quickly for people, and you're not going to do it alone. Mm -hmm. the, the slow crawl, whether that's through regulation and laws or something as simple as you know technology changes and social media and what's prioritized on social media, really how you change things because it's a slow, simple, consistent repetition of the message you're trying to speak, and that changes cultures. Like Bull has been... How many times has Bull been tweeting out, not your keys, not your coins? Yeah, thousands. He's been tweeting that for you know, thousands of times for, I've seen, I think probably four years. But there are other people who are repeating, not your keys, not your coins, whether it came from Bull or not. But that is now a, a cultural value of you know the crypto space. Yeah. Where self-custody is your right. And so for the crypto community to change to... Uh, self-custody it's a slow battle against the inertia of it's convenient for me to have everything on a brokerage right because they're no one's going to take it from me yeah and i think the people who are buying crypto and not self-custodying it just fundamentally do not understand the use case of crypto like the actual reason why we're doing this they don't get it they're just riding the wave they're thinking it's alternative money maybe it's a hedge against inflation but they don't understand that it's a competitor to fiat currencies, which the government is never going to be a fan of. During FDR's presidency, he mandated the buyback of all gold. So all privately held gold, he mandated that people had to sell it to him. And then the government had all the gold and they jacked the price up. It's basically like they printed money. They just stole everybody's gold, jacked the price of gold up, and then they netted the gain. There is no reason why they can't do that with Bitcoin if you hold it on exchanges. Like that's crypto Armageddon to me, is that the government says, we're actually going to require that all exchanges house their Bitcoin in the Federal Reserve. Thank you for playing. And because you don't actually own the Bitcoin, you own an IOU with your name on it that says you own their stock of Bitcoin, you have no control over it and they can take it from you. Correct. That's a real concern. So we've discussed a lot about culture, and one of the essential, perhaps the bedrock of culture, is religious values. So I'm just going to hop right into it. You're a devout Christian. I'm exploring the Christian faith. I was not raised religiously, but I do have some questions. I have some problems potentially with Christianity that I need to come to terms with. Let's start with the idea that the rules have changed over time. So a lot of times today, you'll hear that the Bible's teachings mean something differently today than they did hundreds of years ago, because society has evolved. Do you think that's the case? Or do you think that what the Bible meant hundreds of years ago, even thousands of years ago, is exactly what it means today? So I'm going to be pushed back and give, make you give me an example <laughs> so we can work with it. For instance, every Catholic I know is having sex before marriage. So... You look at stuff like, hey, the Bible had slaves, you know, Solomon had however many, you know, 100 wives or whatever. So if you look at the Bible, it talks about how to, how God asks us to behave regardless of culture. And usually it's those things that don't line up with what, how God has asked people to live in relationship with him that gets you into trouble. So the Bible is about relationship with God. It's, that's what it is. It's the story of us separating from God in the garden all the way to the redemption on the cross by Jesus. Mm -hmm. And the Bible is all about relationship. And here's how I have asked you to live while being in a relationship. So for example, you have a boy, you have a boyfriend, right? Uh -huh. So I'm sure there are rules that you guys have in your relationship, right? Mm 
mm-hmm. their pet peeves, that sort of thing. But you you engage in those, right? Because you want to have relationship and you guys want to you know be together. You change your habits. You know, maybe he gets your boyfriend gets used to you know leaving the seat down. Hey, I hate I hate I don't like you wearing baseball caps or whatever, right? <laughs> he makes all the rules. I just do what he says. Okay, but you still you're still <laughs> changing kidding. your behavior, right? <laughs> But you still have rules to, you know, be in relationship with each other. And so that's what that is. And some of that is, it's not even about these are the rules you need to have to be in relationship with me. That's what the uh, the Old Testament was. So the Old Testament before Christ died on the cross was to remain holy. You need to have these rules versus Jesus saying, I have taken the penalty for you. And now it's no longer about you must be holy to to be with me. It's I have taken that burden from you. And now it's you get to delight in the relationship. There was issues with sex before marriage well before, you know, today, right? You know, you look back medieval era, you look at Rome and Nero and the sex parties they were having. Mm-hmm. And so no, there's nothing new under the sun. If it's new under the sun in terms of Christianity, it's probably heretical. So all this stuff we, you know, we've, we've, we've seen before. And when it comes to culture, you talk about slaves, right? The Bible has rules to keep your slaves, right? And yep. there's rules Everyone for women. Everyone always brings that with, one up. Mm-hmm. When you look at how God asked the Israelites to be when they had slaves, the slaves were given a much higher standard of living than anybody else in the area, except maybe I think the Egyptians and the Greeks. There were rules. You couldn't do things to them. It was actually a human, even though, you know, someone was involved in manual labor, right? There were still rules and you were treated with dignity. It wasn't chattel slavery. There were rules. If, you know, someone misbehaved, you know, they could be, you know, put to death. It's always pointed back to God saying, you are human and that is what I value in you. And so you cannot treat this person less than a person. And look what happens. We, we moved away from that. We moved away from slavery. I mean, you look at King, you know, Solomon with his, you know, hundreds of wives, right? We look at that and go, ew, the Bible doesn't even talk about that. Bible talks about one man, one wife. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're right. And look where it got him. It got him into trouble because he started walking away from God and worshiping other gods and he got punished for it. So for example, with that, the whole idea of relationships and marriage is God's idea of a perfect union of who he created us to be. And so some of that comes from the sex before marriage being ends up hurting people when they break up and causing damage. People talk about that with porn too, right? I think there was a stat that was, I saw a couple of years ago, it was like 80%, like 90% of guys at churches look at porn, right? And yeah, and there's nobody saying that's good. That's good for them. The Bible is relevant regardless of culture. It talks about how to live in the culture we're in now. So just because somebody else is doing it doesn't mean we, sh- you know, doesn't mean we should at the same time. And because that's not how God asked us to live, even though it's some of it is a historical document of what was going on at the time sexual sin and this is actually where we tie back into christian culture and purity culture which was the idea of you know abstain or be damned go, you're going to go to hell if you have sex well purity culture kind of backfired on on people and some of the stuff that we're dealing with today because of the fallout of purity culture is the idea the, the myth of gay sex being the worst sex ever sex being worse than any other sin a lot of the controlling like the actually controlling not jokingly controlling husbands right you know right, where right. there's abu- abuse going on because of the damage purity culture did and the idea that also you know some sins are worse than others it's a misunderstanding of a section in romans where there's kind of this downward spiral of paul lists a bunch of sins and he kind of downward spirals with sex not being at the bottom but people skip over the bottom and that's not how things work and the concept of sin is doing something behaving in a way that's not how jesus wants me to behave it's not not in the way that further builds the relationship with him and usually ends up causing harm to somebody else at the same time. So there was a huge horrific myth that gay sex is worse sex that you know is a worse sin than you know anything else. It it usually is used as a scapegoat for alcoholism or you know I'm hitting my wife or I'm lying. It's a, it's a it's a scapegoat and it was a way to blame somebody else and that's not actually how God sees people. God sees people as you are human, you're male, you're female, you're human. My, your, your worth is placed in me, not in what you do. There's a great quote by C.S. Lewis, but it's, as you walk closer to the light, it gets harder and harder to walk away. Bible is a list of rules. Well, yes and no, but a lot of the time, what it is, is when you develop that relationship with God and the relationship with Jesus, you, you don't, you want to run from the stuff that is not what he's asked and run towards the things that 
he says, this is how I want you to live in a way that is representative of your relationship and your transformed nature with me. I understand that and where you're coming from. The issue that I really have with it is the way that it's used. And I think this is what you're getting at with the the purity culture went too far. I feel like people are cherry picking the Bible. Yes, that happens all the time. That happens from people who are, you know, who say they're Christians and people who are not Christians at all. And that's that's hard because it forces people to confront the fact that they're not perfect. And people aren't and even the people who are in the church, right? Like the the the, the two universals are we're all broken people and we're trying to be a little bit more like Jesus. That's mm. the fairly non-denominational common like the, the laid back laid back culture but it really is i am nowhere near a perfect person like i cannot sit here i can't sit here and say that you know my spouse must be a virgin well that's not true you know porn is a thing right Mm -hmm. so it would be hypocritical of me and it's a lot of people who are who are scared of being called out in my experience people cherry pick the bible all the time and it's sad i hate it i go off on it in real life i'm i rail against it just being very blunt with the purity culture thing. I know a lot of really good women who aren't virgins and they'd make amazing mothers and amazing wives. And when you're on right-wing Christian Twitter, that doesn't seem to be a possibility. Yeah, I have beef with them. And I, I think have beef with I them. understand the point. I get it. Like my boyfriend's my only boyfriend I've ever had. There's no one else I can ever think about when I'm with him. I get that that is a plus to have. But at the same time, as a woman ruined after that I, d- I don't think so and I think that no that is, absolutely it's, not it's and that is something that kills me because I think about girls who read that and people tweet that like oh the, the seal's been broken and that is just horrific they have taken the letter of the law and forgotten the spirit of the law and forgotten the grace and compassion and use it as a tool to wield over young girls and women and other people in the church or just around the world. And it's horrific stuff. And it is, like I said, it is not at all. If you want to talk about why, let's talk about the why. So the reason is simply because couples who are virgins when they're married end up being happier, usually tied into religious. But the, the point behind it is because it's such a hugely intimate act and there's a lot of hurt that comes, I mean, you look at hookup culture, right? We all oh, yeah. look at, we all look at hookup culture and say, look at the emotional damage it does to people. And I'm not going to get into the debate of, well, if you're, if you're too horny and can't keep it in your pants, get married. Cause I've seen that work out horrifically for right. people right. who wasn't a good fit. And you're not broken in God's eyes. If you've had sex, right. Or you've looked at porn or whatever, mm-hmm. cause that's not you, your self-worth is not determined by purity or Anything of like your self-worth is determined because just in the fact that because Jesus died on the cross for you and took care of that. There is nothing you could do to, that could take away the love of God. I totally understand the reason why sex was reserved for marriage. I completely understand. And I think that's the right way of doing it, to be honest, because especially for women, we're not made out of plastic. Like it has an impact on you. And it was for someone who told me that like the rule is not to trap you. The rule was not there to make you pure for your husband. It was with your best interests in mind. It only takes so many knocks, so many breakups like that. And because of my situation, and it's not just because that was my decision. It's probably partially because I was fugly in high school. So this might be a different conversation if I was better looking in high school. (laughs) Same. But, um, I've never, I've never had my heart broken. That's not something I've had to go through that other people have had to go through. So I completely understand the reasoning behind it. But I think it is used as a bludgeon against people all the time. And it draws people away from the church. Anyways. Absolutely. No, absolutely. I can't, I can't count the number of people who have been driven away because of, because of, uh, you could call it purity culture. You could call it, you know, being a dick. You could, I can't count the number of people who've done that. And it's, it's all about a pure, it's selfishness or hurt. I can't tell you the number of people who, who I know of, who have, have, you know, railed against, you know, sex before marriage and need a virgin who've gone out and, you know, slept around, right? It is not even biblical because Mm -hmm. it's not because they've taken, it's just straight up not, it's, it's, it's straight up heretical because if you look at it, it was, if you look at in the new Testament, right? Jesus forgave the, you know, forgave the prostitute. It was never about 
she went to, you know, there's the story of Jesus and the prostitute, like go and sin no more. Um, it was never about the fact that he, he didn't come up to her and say, you've slept with people for money. It's, and so you are going to hell. You can't be forgiven. You are, you are worth less. It was, I've made you whole. Don't go. We're none of us are perfect. That's not the point. The point is to aspire to something better in that relationship with God. So we're allowed to recover from our sins, but when does that become just sinning and apologizing, sinning and apologizing? So that was always my issue with the idea of confession. So I grew up not religiously and I loved Mark Twain growing up. Who would have thought? And I remember in a book in Huckleberry Finn, he talked about this character of the murderer who goes through the countryside, burning things down, murdering, stealing. And then every time he does something wrong, he runs off to the priest and he confesses and he apologizes for what he did. And the, the priest, he blesses him and forgives him. And he goes and does it again. And obviously that is a gross hyperbole of the situation. But what is confessible and forgivable? What is not? Like, where's the line drawn for me and my American precision measuring standpoint? <laughs> you probably wouldn't be far off. And Mark Twain is probably not a hyperbole. <laughs> so when we have confession, some of the Catholic practice of confession is the idea of bringing someone else in to kind of air your sins out and have someone there to kind of hold accountable. I'm not Catholic. I have minor doctrinal differences with Catholics, usually more on the making things a ritual side of things, not allowing for relationship to form. This is often something I see with parents who are Catholic and kids, you know, kids are raised in the church, but they never have a relationship. It's always a ritual. It's always something you just, I went on Sundays to, you know, to mass, right? You know, the problem with confession and in Mark, Mark Twain's guy's case is it's, I want to check a box and I want to live how I want, but I want to go get cleared. I want to go be clear and okay. If, if, I, if, if I get confession, then I am forgiven of my sins. The point of confession was the idea of repentance. Confession is different from repentance. Repentance means, God, I am sorry for the way I acted. I don't want to do this again. Right. God, I am, the, the, way, the way, thing that I did is not in alignment with you. I want to, I, I want to live differently and confession. And this is some of my beef with my light beef with Catholics is the idea that, you know, you're supposed to go to confession and confess your sins. So, Hey, I'm sorry. I've lied. I stole a cookie from a cookie jar. Okay. Go mm. say 12 Hail Marys. You're done. That's mm. not, that, that, that's checking a box. It's I'm the good Catholic or I'm the good Christian. I went to church on Sunday. I went to church on Sunday and I worshiped and maybe if I was bold enough, I raised my hands. So I'm a good Christian. No, that's not. And this is it's where confession misses the mark, where the the the, the bandit was, you know, the, the the traveling murderer. He wasn't doing it because he had relationship with God. He was doing it to check a box and get an he was doing an input of confession and getting an output of perceived forgiveness. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not one to judge a real life person's, you know, state of salvation, much less a fictional characters. <laughs> I am by no means ever saying that I'm perfect. If I ever say that I am perfect, please know my account has been taken over by the feds. <laughs> but I'm like, I'm not, I've done things that are wrong and, you know, not lived up to the way that I've said I set out to do. And I am the world's biggest hypocrites. Uh, I've taught, said before, so this is how you know you've seen me in person. I'm going to walk into heaven with a limp. I am <laughs> not going to be fully healed until I get to hang with God and Jesus because I'm a broken human. So I wasn't raised religiously. I've said that several times now, but I definitely want to be involved in religion in a significant way in my life, not only for me, but for my kids. I just want them to be raised with the community, with the moral foundation, with that being like Sundays is for the family, like all of those types of things. There's a lot of routine aspects of Christianity or religion in general that I think are only good things. And I'll come to terms with most of the the misgivings. And I think part of it is just the way that it's been co-opted by certain individuals, certain institutions. But I understand what you're saying. I think most of the teachings are beneficial for you, but sometimes they're not executed the way that they are meant. As you've been saying, the letter is followed, but not the spirit of the law. I know that I wanna be Christian. And my mother was raised Catholic, 
boyfriend is Catholic. So I'm definitely like, I'd like to say that I'm a free agent. And so there's a lot of Catholics trying to draft me right now. But um, I, I think that will just be the way that I go. But how do I choose between Catholicism and Protestantism, for instance, or from, you know, more yeah. specific sects? So Catholicism and Protestantism, let me kind of break it down a little bit. So a lot of Catholic is it's going to be a lot more of the ritual and the kind of sacred um, sanctity of God and the holiness. And there's this kind of awe. Like, I don't, have you ever walked into a cathedral? I don't know if you've been to Europe oh, or not. Absolutely. I, absolutely. There's kind of this sense of awe, right? And right. it's just yeah. huge. Whoa, you're walking into there, That's a lot of what is emphasized in Catholic faith. Mm-hmm. And so th- th- there's, be- there's beauty in that. And I respect that a lot. I have a, there's a, there's a good friend of mine who converted from Protestantism to Catholicism because they liked the, the ritual and the, the, the structure because they were fairly unstructured in their life. They're one of those, mm-hmm. you know, uh, what, what's it type B, very laid back, very mm. chaotic energy type people. And they liked, they needed that structure in their relationship with God. And I had another friend who did something similar, but to orthodoxy. Mm. because they 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 like that structure a lot regardless of which faith you're in it's still about relationship and the, the depth of how close how close your relationship with god is entirely dependent on you the faith is the gathering place of other christians protestant is going to be more of the laid back somewhere non-denominational they usually have some sort of weird adjective or verb or noun as their name of their church mm. uh, like merge church yeah, or something like so that true. right those are going to be non-denominational and they're going to be fairly laid back that the relationship is emphasized more than the reverence and the sanctity there's still community they're just kind of different community uh, a lot of protestant churches i'm seeing bring a lot of community into the service and things around versus catholic it's you kind of gather at the church and you make your community there and mm-hmm. people go out and talk and do their things versus a lot of protestant churches tend to have a lot of community integrated as in the church is putting on community events the church is putting on you know you know we are doing bible study we're doing youth nights uh versus catholic it, we are having mass and you can go and then people tend to gather together yeah i i totally understand that it's just what makes you go to church? What makes you have the strongest relationship with God? What makes you, what fits for you? I like thinking that the rules matter and that they haven't changed. I like that they're ancient rules. There's ancient rituals. It gives me peace. It makes me feel small. I really, really enjoy that feeling, which is why I think Catholicism is probably the right way of going for me. Or it could be orthodoxy. It could be sick. Orthodoxy could be sick, but orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is wild. It's very. Yeah. I mean, it is very. It is very ritualistic. I have a little bit more beef with them in terms of theology, but again, it's it's relatively minor. Yeah. Well, Bernie, thank you so much for having this conversation. I really, really look forward to doing it again. So I'll be bugging you in a few months, I'm sure. Um, but thank you so much for coming on. Where can listeners find your content? You can find me on Twitter at Bowtie Bernard. You'll get a mix of culture posting, religion posting, and just schizo with a touch of good mornings and memes. <laughs> well, with that, I think we're going to leave you. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you guys in my next video. Bye.